Our scripture reading this evening comes from Psalm chapter 38, so if you would please rise as we hear God's word together. You can find it on page 467 in your pew Bibles. This is God's word. The Psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of your tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, Lord, my salvation. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but our... And the word of the Lord shall stand forever and ever. Let's pray together. Lord, as we've just read, and perhaps a hard truth for many of us, help us to understand this, in fact, is truth. True truths. And we would ask, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may you impart it to us, that we might inwardly digest it all. And all for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I was in seminary when I first heard of this gentleman. Probably not many of you would have heard of him. His name is Emile Calliette. He is, uh, or was, excuse me, a French philosopher. And he grew up in what we might call a naturalistic environment. That would be entirely opposed to God and to his word. He Never, in fact, even saw a Bible until he was 23 years of age. 
And what he was doing is he was seeking after anything, literature or philosophy, that would provide for him some form of what he would call self-understanding. I want to understand myself. And so, in fact, as he would look at different philosophies and even different works of literature and he could find nothing, he began to try to develop his own through a series of journals. And yet nothing ever found its way to creating for him what he would call a persuasion of strength. And he said he was empty. His wife, on one occasion, happened to find herself in a Protestant church heard the gospel preached and went up to the pastor afterwards and asked, do you have a copy of that book in French? To which the pastor said, I do. And, and he gave it to her and she took it home to her husband. And he, Emil, that is, began to read it. And he began to understand what is the Bible. And this is what he said as he began to read more and more. A decisive insight flashed through my whole being. The following morning, as I probed the opening chapters of the Gospel of John, the very clue to the secret of human life was disclosed right there, not stated in the foreboding language of philosophy, but in the common everyday language of human experience. He would go on to say, this is the book that understands me. He's talking about the Bible, this book written of old. It seems to understand him. And he says it's understanding of him and yet it's written in what we would call everyday, ordinary human language. You know, that helps us understand the Psalter. The Psalms are a great place to understanding you and understanding life. It provides voice for some of our greatest joys in life. But it also gives to us words of truth in some of our greatest challenges. One of the things I love about the Psalms is it doesn't matter if you're a thinker or a feeler. It's written for you. And it understands you. And you can find something there. A book that understands you in ordinary language. Is that your understanding of what we just read in Psalm 38? This book that understands me. We read of David and his overwhelming description of his sin and what its effects are on him. Is that your understanding of the Bible? It's a challenge, isn't it? Because if you can say, after reading Psalm 38, I don't understand. This has never been a part of my life. Then I must caution you you might not have ever repented of your sin. If you have never had an encounter in which this is what is giving voice to the inner turmoil of your own heart, then perhaps you've never come to the place of what it means to truly repent of sin. And so what David is doing is he is going against what we might call our cultural prophets who say that don't be so hard on yourself. Give yourself much grace. It's not a big deal. It's just a little sin. It was a small mistake. It's not that bad. And that might even be in the world. And in fact, what you find in the church is many people don't even preach on sin anymore. We don't want to talk about sin. We want to say that, well, Jesus has taken care of that. God never recognizes sin in you. 
He doesn't remember it. He doesn't know about it. He doesn't see it. And all he does is smile at you no matter how you live your life. That's the world and, in fact, often the church. And David is unequivocally saying that is false. God never, ever, ever smiles at sin. Even your sin. Even if you would say, I am a Christian bought with the blood of Christ, David is saying, God is not smiling at you if you are living in sin. And so what we get tonight is two things that David wants to say about sin and one thing he wants to say about salvation. What can we learn about sin? Well, first you can learn sin angers God. God is angry at sin all the time. There is never a moment in which God is not, in fact, angry towards sin. Paul's very simple on it. Doesn't he say in Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin, what you deserve and what you earn because you have sinned is what? Death. And he offers no aid to, well, you've only sinned a couple of times, so there might be a little bit of a discount for you. He says, for the wages of sin is death. There's a cost to it. When you and I sin, it costs something. If it isn't in Christ, if you are not in Christ, Paul is saying it costs death. It costs separation from God, both in this life and in the life to come. There is condemnation. And David here in Psalm 38 is recognizing overwhelmingly clear, isn't he? God hates sin. He hates it. Listen to how he begins. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. It's as though David is saying there's a holy hotness to the anger of God being turned on his sin. There is no relief, as it were, for his sin. And he's not being general. He's being specific. He's not just saying, God, do not rebuke people in anger because of sin generally. He's being very specific. He's talking about himself. And he's talking about his sin. I have sinned. And God, do not rebuke me in your anger. Do not pour out your wrath on me. Or discipline me not in your wrath. He's pleading for mercy. And we have to be clear that what he's doing is he's pleading for mercy. He cannot require mercy. Mercy, And it's as though he's saying, God, be gentle with me, although I have sinned quite grievously towards you. Be gentle. Charles Spurgeon says, don't take the rod and turn it into a sword. It's the image of what we're getting with David. He wants God to be merciful. I'm a sinner. We don't know specifically what sin David is confessing here. But he says, I I am a sinner. I have sinned against you. Have 
mercy. And you might be saying, this is uncomfortable. This is David. Isn't he made right with God, a man after God's own heart? Hasn't he, in fact, been justified before God? He's righteous before the Lord? He's saying, that's true. I have been justified by faith, but my life isn't expressing that faith. It is expressing foolishness. It's expressing sin. This is not uh, an Old Testament version of salvation that you can chuck when you get into the New Testament and say, well, God is no longer angry because Jesus has come. No, everyone at all times has always been saved the same. You trust in God. You put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ alone. And what David is saying is, yes, my position has changed, but God's position against sin has never changed, and it will not. He hates sin. He's angry at it always. There's never an occasion in which he says, Danny, you've got one free sin. Make it count. There's no such teaching in the Bible. And so David is saying, God have mercy. I, in fact, have sinned against you. This is the same man who just a few weeks or perhaps months ago now, who wrote Psalm 32. And you remember that beloved statement that he gives, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And what is David suggesting there? Why can there be blessing? Because in Psalm 32, David is saying, you have imputed that sin to someone else. And yet what he's saying in Psalm 38, that sin still exists right here. And it's mine. I have sinned against you. And God hates it. He hated it in Psalm 32. He hates it in Psalm 38. And so David is asking, please have mercy. Please have mercy. But he knows that God is angry. Now I want to help you understand the anger of God. Maybe we could use two different terms to understand it. And God demonstrates his anger towards people, probably you could say in two different categories. There is a, there's an anger of God that is damnation. And then there is an anger of God that is discipline. Damnation, the, the anger of God for damnation is only poured out on the wicked. It is always and only associated with the wicked. And it is, in fact, to destroy both the sin and the sinner. But the anger of God and discipline is always aimed at destroying the sin in the sinner or the saint, if that may help you. It is a refining process. And it is the anger of God poured out on his children to help them grow in the image of Christ Jesus. And so David is saying, what do we learn about sin? God hates it. He hates every bit of it. It angers him. And yet he recognizes. That's why you read in verse 1, and he says, O Lord. He immediately remembers. This is the covenant God. He has made a promise. There is a promise 
that allows David to ask for mercy. Remember your promise, O Lord, to your people. I have sinned. Remember your promise. Have mercy. It perhaps is what makes it difficult to read verse 2. That he's not just saying he's having trouble. He says your arrows. It's God's arrows. Your hand. It's God's hand that has come down on him. It's not just some bad event in life or some unfortunate circumstance. David is saying, oh no, it is God himself who is involved in what is going on in my life. And he is disciplining me because he hates sin. One thing you learn is sin angers God. Another thing that you can learn from Psalm 38 is that sin affects you. Sin doesn't just anger God, it also affects you. He's come to this clarification that yes, I know that God is angry and he's angry at sin and he's angry at my sin, but look at what it does to me. This is a, this is a how does it feel to be in the hands of an angry God Psalm. How does it feel to be a sinner before a holy and righteous God? David is giving us voice to this is what it feels like. This is the reality of what really happens when you and I choose to sin against God. He's saying there is no measure of pleasure. There is no joy. There is no life. There's no happiness. There's no good thing. It's destructive in every sense of the word. In my life, uh, it has such a huge effect on me. Did you see the words that he's using? It's heavy. It's, it's heavy. It's a, it's a burden on me. I cannot carry it. It's keeping me down. It's painful. It's lonely. David is getting this sense of hopelessness. I cannot make it in my sin. What I want to do, I can't do it. What I don't want to do, I'm continuing to do it. I cannot do it. I'm so burdened, I cannot get up. And he's saying, it's my fault. It is my sin. I have been foolish. And he says, there is no soundness in my flesh. There's nothing of health that is going on in my life, in my body. I am weak. My strength is it's failing. My, my eyesight, it's going away. I'm being robbed. My, my heart is throbbing. It's, it's pounding. And we've understood this before, the the fact that you are one person, that your spiritual and physical life are connected. Maybe you can think about it this way. Some of you, when you are experiencing great deals of stress, maybe your shoulders are tight. Or maybe you begin to get headaches because you're, you're, you're just thinking too much. You're in your own head. There's a physical effect in which you are feeling. There's this saying around the office. They like to use it a lot, and so I should probably support it. It only applies to the office, so we need to be clear on that. 
don't do what Danny does. That's the saying around the office. Remember, it's confined to the office. It's this reality when, when my body is hurting, I just think, you know, if I just pretend that it's not, then it won't. I can just keep going. Uh, some of you know that I have gout. It's a form of arthritis. And so uh, it is very frequent that when I have a gout attack, which literally throws me to the floor, I should stay on the floor. But in fact, I will often get up and go about my business. And so uh, a neighbor of mine saw me in great deals of pain. I had gout in my wrist and I should have been sitting down. But what was I doing? I was doing yard work one-handed. Why? It could have been way better, more beautiful if I just waited a few days. But in my mind, I thought, you know, it's, it's really not that bad. We can pretend that it's not there. Your body, when it hurts, it's a warning. And warnings are to be warnings. And David is saying, I see what's going on in my life and there is a warning and I am clear. It is the Lord himself trying to get my attention. And so he says, I am crushed. I am utterly overwhelmed. Some would even suggest that God has sent a sickness into David's life. We don't know if that's true or not, but you could imagine it to be true, couldn't you? With the way in which he's describing his life. I'm in utter pain for my sides are filled with burning, he says in verse 7. Some of you, I hope some of you did, after worship, watch the Super Bowl. If you did it, you missed a great game. But many of you don't like football, and so you watch for the commercials, which actually they did a fair good job. One of the big commercials, if you knew anything about it, was the TV series that's coming out based on Lord of the Rings. It was the initial trailer. No one had ever seen anything about it. And there's a character, though, not so much in the TV series, but in the movies, Lord of the Rings, the youth had a marathon over this. Gollum, he really helps you understand Psalm 38, doesn't he? Gollum has this love-hate relationship with a ring. He is so obsessed with it. And what does he often call it? It's his precious. He says it very, very weirdly, but, and I won't, I'll spare you that tonight. But he calls it as his precious. It's my precious. And he recognizes that is utterly destroying him. He knows how awful it is. He knows how bad it is. And yet he loves it so much. Every single time he gets a chance, what does he do? He puts it on. And it's nothing but destruction. And he's such a good character to understand what sin does to you because you can see its internal effects with Gollum. You can see its external effects with Gollum. Sin destroys internally and externally. You are never beautiful when you sin. Never. It's a, it's a voluntary enslavement. You and I are so mastered by sin that even though we know it's killing us, we over and over choose it. And David is saying, it affects you. Sin affects you. He's lonely. 
says his friends have left him. We don't know if his friends have left him because of his sin or because of the effects. His family are leaving. He's all alone. All alone because of his sin. Now, let me just give a word of caution. I'm not saying to you that because you have a problem in life or a bad circumstance, it is always due to sin. Job is an example of that. Actually, the blind man in John chapter 9 is a great example. But James Montgomery Boyce, I think, helps us. He provides in his commentary four questions of consideration. When you want to understand if God is trying to get your attention and warn you against sin, he offers these four questions. Have I sinned or gotten off the track of obedience to what I know I should be doing? And is this setback God's way of getting me back on track and into fellowship with him? Is God using this to trim off some rough edges of my personality and develop a more Christ-like character in me? Is God using my suffering as a stage upon which his name and wisdom may be glorified? Is it a place for me to show that I love him for who he is entirely apart from whatever material and physical benefits he may have given me? It's a helpful consideration when you're trying to understand what's taking place in my life. And David is saying over and over, sin has drastic effects on me. And it's ironic, isn't it? Because he says he's all alone. And yet he's not alone. It's far worse than his loneliness. His friends and family have left, but his foes have not. There are accusers waiting to take him out, waiting for his, their opportunity of destruction. And so David is saying, sin angers God. Sin affects you. But there is something for us to understand about salvation. It is a difficult outline to operate off of. Charles Spurgeon, I think, has one, but he has a principle in his outline that I think is beautiful. He's describing, uh, he's saying that David begins with this petition and he quickly goes into this recognition of his sin. And this is what Spurgeon says. David pauses to dart an eye at heaven. And that's where you get verse nine. He proceeds with the second tale of sorrow And then interjects another word of hopeful address to God. It's as though David is recognizing the wretchedness in his life, but yet he's got the ability given to him by God to look into the heavens and recognize, yet there is a God who's still sitting on his throne, who's still providing truth and promise for him. And so David provides to us, what do we learn about salvation? How do we understand its benefit to us? Well, David says that there are accusers. They have come to seek to destroy him. And they are, they're heralding facts that are false. They're giving these false testimonies, as it were. They're saying, here's evil for what you did, which was good. And what is David's response? He's silent. 
he doesn't respond. He calls himself a mute man. And what does he say after that? But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. My hope is in Yahweh. My hope is not in my answer. My hope is not in my rationale. I don't have one. I don't have a defense. I don't have a rationale. I cannot provide an excuse for my sin. And so he says, God's going to answer. And what he's saying is, God's not going to answer my question. No, it's the word defense to say, no, God is going to provide a defense for him. It's not just an answer. It's going to say, he is my son. He is my child. You will not stand against him. This is the kind of courtroom that David is providing. God is your witness. God is on your side. He will answer. Where can David get that? How in the midst of such a confession can he come upon such a truth? I think it has more to do with the title of the psalm. Something that you and I most likely skipped over. How does this psalm begin? A psalm of David for the memorial offering. The idea of a memorial offering, it is meant to uh, help us. It's a cause to remember moment. It is to acknowledge. You can read about a, a memorial offering in First Chronicles 16. That is a praise unto the Lord for what he has done. But the point of these offerings is to remember God. And that is actually how he began when he revealed himself to his people. Do you remember how God explains his name to Moses in Exodus chapter 3? Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. David is understanding something about salvation because he's being told he has to remember someone. He has to acknowledge someone. And who is it that he acknowledges? It's his covenant father. It's God himself who will provide the answer. How do we learn about salvation? David is saying to you, salvation is answered through sin bearing. Salvation is answered through sin bearing. What do I mean by that? When you read Psalm 38, do you know what you're reading? A guilty sin bearer. But the language of Psalm 38 is going to find its way in another Old Testament significant passage. It's not going to be a guilty sin bearer. It will show up in Isaiah chapter 53, the righteous sin bearer. When you look into your Bible and you see in verse 5 that his wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. In verse 8, he is crushed. You can turn over to Isaiah 53 and read in verse 8. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed. Same word for our iniquities. In Psalm 38, verse 11, we read that his friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. 
Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Yet we esteemed him stricken. That word stricken is the same word for plagued here in Psalm 38. Verse 17, David says, I am ready to fall. My pain is ever before me. Isaiah chapter 53, again in verse 3 and 4. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. That's the same word for pain that David is describing here. He's acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The righteous sin bearer had accusers, didn't he? That is Jesus. He had people accusing him, didn't he? And yet, Just like David, he remained silent. He remained silent and let his own heavenly father answer. And why? Because what would Jesus have had to say when he's on trial? And they're saying, why are you here? Why are you doing these things? What wrong have you done? What would he have to do? He would have to say, Danny's put me here. Danny's sin. Danny rebelled against me. Danny wanted something more in this life than in the next. And if Danny's going to be alive, I'm going to have to close my mouth. Your righteous sin bearer stood silent so that you don't have to. That you could sing praises. Praises to our God. It's why I encourage you over and over. Stop being Presbyterian in your singing. Sing loudly. You have reason to sing. Do not put your somber face on. You have a good reason to sing because you have a righteous sin bearer who stood silent in your place so that you can sing. Oh, it's wonderful news, isn't it? That's why you can read Psalm 38 and see the joy of what David is providing. This man who knew so much of God, knows so much of your life and what it's like. You who've grown up in the church and you've heard these things all your life. There's David. And he's saying, just because you know it doesn't mean you do it. I have a word for you. Saying sin is so destructive. Don't play with it. That's how you parent your children, isn't it? You try to remind them. If you touch that, it's going to burn you. Or if you keep jumping off that wall, you're not going to land on two feet forever. What are you telling them? You can try. But do know, pain is coming. A mistake will happen Is there sin in your life that you're treating that way? I want to get as close to the heat as possible without getting burned. I'll try this one thing to see how far I can go. David's saying it's destructive. It will hurt. It will destroy. Do not play with it. He wants to be so clear on sin. Because sin makes us foolish. 
It makes us foolish. We say foolish things. And so David is being so honest here. He's being honest about his sin. Don't you just enjoy what he says in verse 18? Turn the page. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm not going to explain it away. I'm not going to blame somebody else. It's my sin. It's my responsibility. I am guilty. It's his confession. I am wrong. If you can say things like that, you are altogether different from this world. I heard a pastor quote something and I thought when he was doing it, surely that's not true. There's a woman, her name is Virginia. I think the way you would say her last name is Satter. She's an American author, but she is a psychotherapist. She has something called my declaration of self-esteem. Let me read to you what she would call her declaration of self-esteem. I am me. In all the world, there is no one else exactly like me. There are persons who have some parts like me, but no one adds up exactly like me. Therefore, everything that comes out of me is authentically mine because I alone chose it. I own everything about me, my body, including everything it does, my mind, including all its thoughts and ideas, my eyes, including the images of all they behold, my feelings, whatever they may be, anger, joy, frustration, love, disappointment, excitement, my mouth and all the words that come out of it, polite, sweet or rough, correct or incorrect, my voice loud or soft, and all my actions, whether they be to others or to myself. I own my fantasies, my dreams, my hopes, my fears. I own all my triumphs and successes, all my failures and mistakes. Because I own all of me, I can become intimately acquainted with me. By doing so, I can love me and be friendly with me in all my parts. I can then make it possible for all of me to work in my best interests. I know there are aspects about myself that puzzle me and other aspects that I do not know. But as long as I am friendly and loving to myself, I can courageously and hopefully look for the solutions to the puzzles and for the ways to find out more about me. However I look and sound, whatever I say and do and whatever I think and feel at a given moment in time is me. This is authentic and represents where I am at that moment in time. When I review later how I looked and sounded, what I said and did, and how I thought and felt, some parts may turn out to be unfitting. I can discard that which is unfitting and keep that which proved fitting and invent something new for that which I discarded. I can see, hear, feel, think, and do. I have the tools to survive, to be close to others, to be productive, and to make sense and order out of the world of people and things outside of me. I own me. And therefore, I can engineer me. I am me. And I'm okay. It's utterly sad. It's utterly sad. What I appreciated about this pastor was the truth he proclaimed following it. It's a truth that we here at Smyrna Presbyterian Church have confessed before. It's the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death that I am not my own 
but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. You see, brothers and sisters, your confession matters eternally. Either you are your own or you are owned by Christ. And if you are your own, you will perish in hell for all eternity. But the beauty of what David is saying here is, but there is another, there is another who has purchased life, purchased people. His name is Jesus. That's what this table is here for, is to remind you, salvation is always answered through sin bearing. The question is, are you the sin bearer or is Christ? Let me pray for us. Our God and our Father, we thank you for such a truth of Psalm 38. It's a magnificent truth. It's one in which I can't always get my mind wrapped around it because you say that your word is eternal and I believe that. How does Psalm 38 fit into glory? Unless it's the great reminder of the good news of the gospel And what was paid on our behalf by Jesus Christ himself. And so we give you thanks that there is a temporary sense to this psalm. There yet is an eternal one. That we will ever have the praises before you because we have the answer of salvation. And it is Christ alone. And so I pray this night, please help us. Help us to be real in our confession of sin. For those who have never truly repented, would you lead them by your kindness to repentance that they understand life in Christ? And yet for those who are in Christ, help us not to play with sin. Help us to recognize that you hate it and it has a destructive effect on us. That we might have our hearts warmed with affection towards Christ for what he has done on our behalf. And so we ask, O Lord, please would you speak. For your servants are listening. And all in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.